Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi Lou, we have a really fun theme today. All of our books have twins as the main characters, which is quite a lot of fun. There's a universal fascination with twins I think yes and they do make a great central mm. plot in a in a novel I've always been interested in twins my dad was a twin oh I didn't know that yeah mm. and my grandmother used to tell us lots of made-up stories about twins and and the things they got up to I think based on the things that mm. my dad and his brother got up to and I think lots of us at one time or another have wondered what it would be like to have a twin yeah I agree I agree yeah I've got very close girlfriends who are twins and, yeah, I'm fascinated by the yeah. relationship. Yeah, we yeah. all are, I yeah. think. And there are some really amazing stories of twins separated at birth mm. who then go on to lead remarkably similar lives and they'll live on the same street mm. and they'll both marry a woman named Barbara and they have the same children. Yeah. There are some Incredible. amazing stories. Was your so. brother a fraternal twin? My dad was fraternal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But his mother insisted that they were identical <laughs> and they so were not. <laughs> Blind Freddie could see they were not identical (laughs) twins. But anyway, I think twins are a great theme in a book because we always like to think of things having light and shade, Mm. good and evil, happy and sad, you know, sliding doors moments are always fascinating Mm. to us, you know, the, the, the path not taken, our shadow selves. And there's a lot you can do with twins in that context, so... I can see why it's always a popular thing to do. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So did you want to make a start with your first book? Yes, I will. So the first book that I've read, and I know you have read it too, Virginia, is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Yeah. Published by Riverhead Books in the US. Um, That's an imprint of Penguin Random House. And by Dialogue Books in the UK, which is a Hachette company. And that's how it came to me because Hachette send me books from time to time. So thank you very much to them. Some of you will know the author Britt Bennett from a previous bestseller, The Mothers, which centred on a friendship between two teenagers in a conservative black community. And that was a good book. Yeah, I loved that one. Mm, I did too. But this new book, The Vanishing Half, I also really enjoyed. It's a very big story. It spans over 30 years and it manages to pack so much into the story, isn't it? In fact, if anything, I felt there was perhaps a little bit too much. I didn't need absolutely everything that was in that story. And there's some really big characters. Yeah. And that's all packed into, you know, 340 pages. Yeah, because it becomes multi-generational, which makes it a big story, doesn't it? It does. It does. The novel starts in a fictional town, Mallard, in Louisiana, And its inhabitants are all light-skinned African-Americans and they're very protective of that fact and they don't want it to change. So the the sort of social mores and informal rules of the town ensure that the community marries to maintain its lightness. And there are darker-skinned people on the periphery of the town, but they're not really welcome. 
And Mallard was established by a free man, Alphonse Del Coeur, in 1848. And he'd been born a light-skinned Negro. And he dreamt of, and these are Britt Bennett's words, a town for men like him who would never be accepted as white but refused to be treated as Negroes. So in Mallard, years later in the 1950s, we meet his great, great, great granddaughters, I think, the twins, Desiree and Stella Vignes. And it's not a spoiler because we learn in the first few pages that the lost twins, as they're referred to in Mallard, leave Mallard in 1954, aged 18. And the town gossips that it was Stella's idea for them to leave because she's the clever one. But in fact, we learn it was Desiree's idea. And she's fantasised about re- leaving Mallard pretty much all her life, yeah. hasn't she? Yeah. Uh, and they go to, initially to New Orleans where they struggle to find jobs and eventually Stella vanishes. She flukes a very good job at an upmarket department store where she is mistaken as a white girl and she very quickly makes the decision to maintain this facade and she essentially passes from black to white. Now, passing is not a word that I was familiar with at all. Yeah, there's a novel called Passing, okay. um, which is a classic, which yeah. I really do want to read. It's yeah, very high on my list and it, and it has a similar theme to this. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I, it wasn't something I was familiar with. I mean, I was familiar with the concept, but yeah. I wasn't familiar yeah. with it being described as passing. I probably was more familiar in the context of the British Empire yeah. when black communities talk about lightness, the proximity of lightness to whiteness as being a positive thing. Yes. But, uh, yeah, anyway, so this was new to me. And there is some explanation as to why Stella makes this sort of what I would describe as a fairly fraught choice, but there is sort of some understanding in the sense that the twins witnessed how despite his incredibly fair skin as a light-skinned Negro, their father was lynched. Yeah. as a black man by a group of white people who resented his success. And they, Stella was painfully aware that fair skin was no shield if you weren't white. And I was just really struck by the sort of huge emotional, and I, th- I think Britt Bennett did a very good job with this, the trauma and emotional compromise that's required yes. to pretend that you're white. And, of course, we're talking about 1960s America here, you know, the era of civil rights, Martin Luther King, I think she's very good at making us squirm with that choice that Stella makes. Yeah. Well, for me, it was almost the fact that she even has to give an account of what she is, is abhorrent. Yes. Why does she even have to advance that she is anything? Yes. You know, in an ideal world, you know, we should just take people on their face value. Well, it shouldn't matter that she's black. So it's such an abhorrent... But that Concept. makes the decision so complex, it's doesn't so it, that complex. she has determined that she will... And she's got to carry it through. Yeah, you know, and there's no dresses, going back. How she there's speaks. no going back, you know. Yeah. And so that sort of building of momentum of Stella's secret, I think, is very well maintained in the book. Yeah, And, really of course, is. there are some moments when she makes some decisions and yeah. exercises her judgment in a way ostensibly as a white woman, and I, I'm not going to go into that because no. it will give too many things away, but the tension there, I think, is yeah, fantastic. really well done. Desiree makes different choices. She marries, as the book says, the blackest man she can find, and she never stops looking for her sister. Yeah. Which I found, you know, that was very moving. And 14 years later, again, not a spoiler because it is literally the first opening sentence of the book, in 1968 she walks back into the town, into Mallard, with a small child and a girl whom we learn is her daughter. Now, Stella also has a daughter, 
And a lot of the book is about their generation, the impact of their mother's lives and choices upon each of the daughters. And so the, the book does sway between those two generations, and particularly Desiree's daughter, who is not light-skinned like her mother. That's right. And what I think Britt Bennett does very well is writing about complex relationships and complex emotions. Mm. And I I think she makes them really accessible to us. Mm. There's a transgender character in the book. Oh, yes. And I think she unpacks that really, really well. I thought that was so beautifully done. And very tender. It's a very tender relationship that one of the girls has. And there's the relationship with Stella's husband, which was so painful and frozen and so many other things. And then I think also the mother-daughter relationship. Oh, I was about to say. Yes, Stella and her daughters was very well done. It was brilliantly written. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I really have to give her, you know, Five stars for that. I just think that mm. that's fabulous. There were a few coincidences in the book that a few people might find far-fetched. But uh, I don't know. I'm one of those people that kind of thinks the universe at first does propel people together, as kooky as that is. And I think sometimes some collisions and some meetings is kind of there is a destiny kind of element yeah, in there. Yeah. So for me, it, it didn't bother me. No, at all. it didn't bother me either. Um, I know I have heard other people comment on that. Yeah, I bought it. Yeah, I completely <laughs> bought it, and I, I was on board. Yeah, yeah. So look, I, I, a very, very enjoyable book, and I would definitely recommend people read it. What did you think about the town of Mallard? I thought it was an interesting way she portrayed the town and the people in the town. Yes, it, it, it felt. A little bit like a movie set, didn't it? Yes, that's a great way to describe it. I was going to say it was a bit like a caricature of a town. It was almost like it had one dimension. You could fold down the screen. and So even the people of the town were a bit two-dimensional. And I I assume Britt Bennett did this deliberately. Yes, as a device, yes. Because many of the people in the town were only mentioned in terms of what they had to say about the person's skin. Yes. Well, pretty much pretty much all of it, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But that made me feel that they were on high alert. Yes. The fact that that was all they were about. Yeah, the fact that that's all she told us about them yeah. was that to that's me that they were know. on high alert. And then we know they're on high alert because they notice who's arriving and who's leaving. Yeah, and, yeah, and they and, ring up. Yeah. yeah. It was a bit Truman Show-esque. Yes, that's so true. I wondered whether she was doing it also to portray it as the twin image of a white town, such as the town where Stella ended up, which is also equally just as concerned with the colour yes. of a person's skin. Like a gated community, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the minute some coloured people came in, yes. it was all on for young and old. So that to me, these towns were sort of the opposite of hyper-real. They were almost cartoon-like. Yes, yes. Yeah, a movie set's a really good way to describe it. And the irony, it. really, of yeah. having made that decision and then to be as racist as yes. a white community. yes. Yeah, again, yeah. Yeah, because I thought Mallard was just as racist as the rest of America. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, yeah. and, and obviously they had become that way because of the rest of America. Yes. They probably weren't inherently. Yeah. And it was also never explained how the residents managed this genetic feat of always no. having lighter and lighter skinned babies. It's just presented as that's the way it is. And then, and then later the town just disappears off the map. Yes. So I, I think she, that must have been a deliberate choice by her. I loved the book. I absolutely loved it and I went through it so quickly. But my one criticism is that she told us way too many times about the colour of the twins' skin, the colour of the 
skin of the residents of the town, the colour of the skin of the twins' daughters. And I did feel as though Britt Bennett had taken the book and hit me over the head with it. Yes, it was laboured, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, really? it's just too much. I, it's another case for me of, of an author not giving the, the reader enough mm. credit mm. for having got it the first mm. time or the tenth time mm. even. And I do understand that she used that repetition to... Uh, make the point abundantly clear, but I prefer a bit more subtlety. I think if I was her editor, <laughs> I'm always imagining that I'm someone's editor, I would have suggested she trim some of those mentions. I, I found that particularly with the daughter. I think yeah. with, with, with um, Desiree's daughter, I didn't quite understand why we, yes. we kept needing to know how dark her skin yeah. was. Yep. She's yeah, she's blue, black, blue, black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. So the next book that we were going to talk about is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell mm. and she's written some excellent books. I really loved um, and would really recommend The Vanishing Act of mm. Esme Lennox, mm. which is such a powerful book. I, I remember that so vividly. I just loved that and there's a few others of hers that I've really loved. This latest book, which interestingly has not been long-listed for the booker. I know, I saw today. I'm surprised. One of those strange things yeah, I'm about very surprised. prize lists. I think it's a fantastic book. Mm. So it's the story of Shakespeare's wife, and Lou tells me the correct pronunciation is Agnes, who we know these days as um, Anne Hathaway, and the loss of one of their twins. And Maggie O'Farrell has written this as an imagined story about the family, but Shakespeare's name is never mentioned once. Mm. Must have been hard to do yeah. when you're writing yeah. it to pull it yes. off and call it the glovemaker's son or the husband. Or, or the tutor. Or the, yeah. yeah. So we're told in the historical note at the front, it says, in the 1580s, a couple living in Henley Street, Stratford, had three children, Susanna, then Hamnet and Judith, who were twins. The boy Hamnet died in 1596, aged 11. Four years or so later, the father wrote a play called Hamlet. So we know right from the beginning that one of the mm. twins is going to die, so that it's not a spoiler. I just thought her writing in this was excellent, and she's made it a very visual story. To me, it felt as though I was watching it unfold as a Shakespearean play. Mm, absolutely. And she describes the house, or Agnes actually describes it to Shakespeare as a, an A-shaped house and Shakespeare's parents live next... Oh, I think they live in the A-shaped house and then Shakespeare and Agnes live next door in a house that sort of leans up against the main mm. house. And it's all described as though we're looking at houses with the front taken off them, like a row of dolls' houses. Like an elevation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Shakespeare's father was a glove maker and his shop was part of his house and he sounds as though he was a horrible, violent mm. man. Mm. And as the book begins, Shakespeare is away in London for work where he goes for long periods, leaving his wife and children in Stratford, living next door to his parents. And the book begins with young Hamnet searching through both houses, desperately trying to find a member of the family, and everybody is out. And he can't understand where everyone's gone. His twin sister, Judith, has become feverish, and he has had to run for the doctor. And it becomes apparent that the plague has found the family. And Maggie O'Farrell writes the most fabulous chapter about how the plague came to England and exactly how it mm. came to be contracted by Judith. 
and it starts with a cabin boy leaving a ship in Alexandria in Egypt to get some food on the dock and he comes across a man with a monkey on a gold chain and he gets chatting to them and he's rather taken with a monkey and the monkey climbs onto the boy's head and leaves a flea in the boy's neckerchief. And then the boy goes back to the ship and cuddles the ship's cat. And they obviously had lots of cats on the ships to deal with the rats. And then the flea jumps from the boy's neckerchief into the cat's fur. And then on it goes for about mm. 12 pages. It's fabulous. And it isn't never it? gets boring. No, it's great. Until it ends up in the wrapping of some Murano glass beads from Venice that Judith has ordered. And it's just so clever and well done. I absolutely loved it. Mm, and I thought it was excellent, excellent. I love the book too. The twins in the book, Hamlet and Judith, are obviously an integral part of the story of the family. Throughout the whole book, we are being propelled towards yeah. Hamlet's death. But the story is really about their mother, Agnes. I listened to an interview Maggie O'Farrell gave at the Stratford-upon-Avon Literary Festival this year in March. Oh. And, look, it's easy to, if you Google it, it's easy to find it. And it, she really got me thinking about the idea of, which you premised at the beginning, you know, shifting our focus from the famous person and what they do and what makes them famous and, in this case, moving to their domestic environment and learning this whole new narration about their life and they're only this bit player, and I love that. And, of course, from the perspective of the people who are closest to them. And like all writers, we know that Shakespeare would have drawn from his own experience or life, but other than the connection to his son and writing the play Hamlet, the sort of nods to his plays, I think, are quite subtle in the book and they don't intrude. But when he first meets Agnes, he's quite a bit younger than her. He's 18 and she's 26 and he's been engaged as a tutor for her younger siblings. And his first thought is that she's a boy. Yeah. And Shakespeare often toyed with gender and appearance. In As You Like It, Rosalind dresses up as a boy. And in Twelfth Night, also known as What You Will, Viola has a twin, Sebastian, doesn't she? Yep. From whom she's separated. And Viola masquerades as a boy. Yeah. And, of course, Hamlet and his twin Judith are very physically similar are we told they're identical twins but they, no, they, they can't are, be of course they're not yeah of course they're not yeah but they they are very very similar and very close other. very close yeah now Agnes's mother own mother has died in childbirth and she has a brother with whom she's very close Bartholomew I thought the relationship with Bartholomew was yeah. beautifully yeah, written I did too I loved that such a close mm. caring he was a fabulous character really thought yeah. it was great Agnes becomes pregnant to the tutor and she moves to live with his family in this A-frame house that you've mentioned. But she's moving effectively from the country to a town and she's treated with a great deal mm. of suspicion, isn't she? Yeah. She's what I describe as a really visceral woman. She's deeply intuitive and responsive to her environment. Turns out that she has a gift for plants and herbs and she becomes sought after in the town for the potions and her medicinal cures. So people are very wary of her yeah, because she doesn't conform, but they also seek her out when it suits them, yeah, particularly for her healing skills. You know, the word witch comes to mind. Yes. There is. Oh, for uh, sure. You know, She's very otherworldly. Yeah. And you wonder how, how it could have gone the other way yeah. had she not had something to offer the town, I suppose. And look, it's Agnes who actually 
instinctively and intuitively knowing her husband as well as she does, she encourages him and he manipulates the situation to make sure he gets to, to yes. go to London. She puts his needs and his creativity before her well own. Well ahead of her own, yeah. yeah. And, of course, that is what actually happened, but it's also perfect for the context of the story because it leaves Agnes at the heart of it and, and yeah. Shakespeare has yeah. gone. I think what stood out for me most in this book was Maggie O'Farrell's ability to exquisitely capture, perfectly capture the grief of oh, Agnes yes. over the loss of yes. her son. Yeah. I, I just was yeah. floored by it. Yeah. It's so excruciating and like you know, like all parents or mothers particularly who've lost a child, she's sort of hypersensitive yeah. to her own feelings, Agnes, isn't she? Yeah. She's intensely in tune with them and she's intensely in tune with the responses of everyone around her. I think it's an amazing tribute to grief. I think it's it brilliantly is. written. Yeah, I agree. And, of course, she also details the impact of the loss of their son on their marriage and then, of course, the elements of estrangement and blame. And I just think she's done an incredible job of entrapping the negative spaces between yeah. Agnes and her husband and, and everyone around her. Yeah. Sort of the things they can't say, uh, the things they don't say. Mm. The emotion close to the surface is so palpable. Mm. I, I just can't talk about that yeah. enough. But I guess what's so remarkable about that is, of course, the book is set in the 1600s and there's a, you know, Maggie O'Farrell observes a sort of a, almost a formality to their expression and their writing, which creates an atmosphere of that era. And yet the grief and loss is so universal mm. and so accessible to us in yeah. 2020. Yeah. So just extraordinary. A really beautiful book. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was just wonderful. I there's a few of her books that I still haven't read and reading this has reminded yeah, me, me that I need to seek mm. out the ones I've mm. not yet read because mm. she's just a sensational writer. Yeah, I loved it. Okay, my final book is called A Saint from Texas by Edmund White and it was sent to me by Bloomsbury. I haven't read Edmund White before, no. although I have seen his book Flaneur all over Instagram, and when I look, look how many books he's written. Oh gosh, it's I, I'm shocked that I, that I haven't read any of these. There's, he's got books about Marcel Proust and what's Rimbo. his nationality? I think he's American. Hmm. Just don't know how I haven't read more of him. So there is some content to this book that I should mention at the outset, which is incest. So if that's something that you really don't want to read about, then this book may not be for you. I just thought I should flag that. Hmm. This is the story of the lives of identical twin girls, again, so same as we had in The Vanishing Half and absolutely identical, you know, down to the last detail. These girls come from a small town in Texas in the 1950s and their father strikes oil on their property and they mm. become very, very wealthy. They go from having no money and nothing to being very, very wealthy. And the mother named them from a fan magazine, I think, and she named them Yvonne and Yvette. But she had never heard the names spoken. She'd only seen them in this magazine. So she pronounced them Yvonne and Yvette. Okay. <laughs> and, and the narrator of the story is Yvonne, and she says, my mother was so ignorant that she called us Yvonne and Yvette. And the book is the story of their lives, which go in very different directions, and it comes right up to the near present time by mm. the end of the book. 
So the, the mother dies and a new stepmother comes in and she is a bit more switched on and sorts them out and gets them to stop mm. calling themselves Yvonne and Yfit. <laughs> so the book's narrated by Yvonne and so we see everything through her eyes and she's a much more social person. She's keen to get out into the world. Yvette is more academic and she becomes skeletally thin as a teenager. She doesn't eat. She doesn't want to make her debut, which Yvonne is doing, and she becomes an ascetic. At one point I thought she was a little bit like Dorothea in Middle March. She becomes hyper-religious, very fervent, and then it all becomes apparent why she's behaving Mm. like this, and I, I won't elaborate on that. Yvonne has a facility for languages, so she gets packed off to Paris to learn French and she ends up marrying a poor French count and he regards it as an exchange, you know, his title in exchange for her millions. Wow. So she becomes a countess. I think she actually becomes a baroness, I'm not sure, and he uses all her millions that she earns every year to completely rebuild the family chateau and decorate it with antiques. And so they sort of, they have this very strange marriage where it's a bargain. It's quite cold and calculating, Superficial, really. yeah. Um, and I think she realises that she hasn't got a very good deal. I'm not sure that she even really cared about becoming a countess. I don't know. So she gives birth to a pair mm. of twins herself, a boy and a girl. And then the story is mostly about her life in France. There's lots of adultery, very lavish living, and it gets quite dark towards the end of the book and there is a murder. Gosh. Um, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Yvette becomes a nun. So the the very ascetic one becomes a mm. nun and she goes to live in Colombia. So these twins could not end up having more different lives and they intersect only very rarely mm. as adults, which is quite unusual. I don't know how realistic that is for identical mm. twins. I don't know. I would have thought that they would want to Remain be together connected. more. Mm. Yeah. It's an enjoyable book. His writing is very good. But there are not a lot of underlying messages or themes in the book and there's mm. not really any social commentary other than sort of what a waste it is being rich and just spending a lot of money on mm. antiques and renovating a castle. I don't don't know. So whilst I had no trouble finishing it and I really did want to know what happened to everybody, I was left at the end sort of wondering a little bit what the point of the story was. (laughs) And I think these days, and it's probably me, I think most of the books that I read these days have a point. Yes. And in this case, the point was really just a made-up story about some very rich people. Yeah, okay. Who choose different paths in life. And I think... There obviously is a place for novels that are a diversion and just a yes. story for a story's sake. And I do read books like that, books yeah. that are just escapism. You know, yes. I mean, there's lots like, you know, you think mysteries, cosy yes. mysteries, yeah, absolutely. romance novels. Mm. And there's a big place for those. But it's not as if that sounds like it even falls into no. a well-worn genre like no. crime or, you know, like it's sort of packed full of all sorts of things. Yeah, just it's for, just a story. It's a mishmash. You know, it's, he's a storyteller, I would yes. say, this guy. And it was entertaining. But, yeah, I, I suspect that I probably, at the age I'm at now, I'm looking for something a bit mm. more. And I feel like this author, in this case didn't really have anything serious to say Mm. or he wasn't really holding up a mirror to society and 
it's probably more of a reflection of, of me and what I'm what you're interested looking in. for. That yeah. I like it when yeah. there's something a little bit more meaty yes. underneath. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's a very enjoyable, interesting book, but it just lacked that extra layer mm. that I think I'm often looking for. Mm. Yeah, so that's A Saint from Texas by Edmund White. I think it's out the beginning of August. Okay, because Flaneur has definitely had a lot of press, yes. so I wouldn't mind sort of investigating that a little bit. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not familiar with them otherwise. wandering around Paris is very appealing to me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I'd be very well prepared to do without purpose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's called The Flaneur, A Stroll Through the Paradoxes of Paris. Oh, yes. I, so I, that sounds I, good. I think I could do that yeah. without purpose. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's an end in itself, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so what else have you been diving into, Lou? Um, well, I've got a couple of podcasts to mention. The first one I cannot rave about enough. It's so well produced and researched and it's called 13 Minutes to the Moon. It has been out for a little while. It came out and started in 2019. It's been produced by the BBC World Service. Oh. And it's essentially, and I, the reason I picked this is because a couple of episodes ago you mentioned how you love just imagining space space yeah um i think it was our yeah, episode we were talking about uh, julia baird's book yes Phosphorescence. yes and being small yeah how, how good you will just small you'll love this so it's basically epic stories of nasa's missions to the moon oh, um, oh wow and there's two seasons so far season one which was released last year was about the first moon landing apollo 11 and season two which came out this year is the tragedy that was almost apollo 13 right and that title 13 minutes to the moon that relates to that final critical landing phase of the Apollo 11 mission. So the last 13 minutes before the lunar module right. Eagle after it separates from the command module wow. and lands on the moon. There are audio and transcripts and interviews you will never have heard before. So for me, it was an event that I thought I knew all about, but there's so much extra stuff in the podcast. It's really good, and it's just so beautifully. The, the guy, Kevin Fong, who does all the interviews, he's fantastic. My husband's really loving it. Wow. And one of the things that he mentioned to me, and it, it actually is one of the episodes, is the age of the mission controllers. The average age, I think, was 27. It's extraordinary. It's when extraordinary. you think of our yeah. children. <laughs> yeah, and you, think, you see wow. the pictures of all of them in the room and, of course, they're all wearing the signature uniform, which is a white shirt with a black tie and a lot of them have got glasses. So you don't necessarily notice their age oh, so much. The responsibility yeah. they're carried. So, I mean, President Kennedy made that speech about reaching the moon by the end of the decade and so all these young college graduates yeah. were employed by NASA no interviews they literally were taken in engineering maths physics degrees and for many of them it was a, a job for life and the youngest mission controller was Spencer Gardner he was only 26 years old wow and he sat in the control room to the right of the legendary flight director, Gene Krantz. Wow. Uh, and he served on five Apollo missions while studying law in his spare time. Of course he did. And he later switched professions. But, look, if space is your thing, and oh, even if it's wow. not actually, I can really yeah, recommend it. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Fabulous. And then the other one, which is a bit of fun, this podcast, Wind of Change, has been recommended to us by my dear friend Karen who is a huge supporter yeah, of the Diving In Karen. podcast. We love Karen. She's been an amazing uh, supporter of Diving In and she encourages everyone to listen to our podcast. In fact, I think we think she's our number one ticket holder. She is our number one ticket holder <laughs> and her book club are two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 ticket holders. Absolutely. We're very grateful for their support. So this podcast, Wind of Change, 
is presented by an American journalist, Patrick Radden Keefe. He's a writer and he's a staff writer for The New Yorker, actually. And if the title Wind of Change is familiar to you, it may be because you remember a song by that name. It was a huge hit worldwide. It was a sort of soaring rock ballad. Oh. And in a nutshell, the lyrics talk about the children of tomorrow dreaming of change. And that's pretty much it. Loop, repeat, loop, repeat. If you Google it, I guarantee it will be instantly familiar. It's sort of got this whistle in it that you, you'll recognise. Oh, okay. I could sing it for you, but we would lose all our listeners. <laughs> It was released <laughs> by the German rock band The Scorpions in 1990, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Or was it? Oh, okay. Because there is a theory that has been recounted to Patrick that this song was, in fact, written by the CIA. <gasps> oh, this sounds amazing. So this seems like a totally far-fetched conspiracy theory, and they make for enjoyable podcasts, but... You know, what we do know about spy agencies around the world is that they did engage with foreign powers at a cultural level. In episode six, we talked about yes. Boris Pasternak's yeah, absolutely. stealing the book back from Italy. Exactly. And the Americans printed thousands of copies and they distributed it yep. in, in Russia. So, yeah, the cultural approaches to espionage are nothing new. So in August 1989, prior to the Berlin Wall coming down and after protracted negotiations with the Kremlin, the Scorpions, along with other heavy rock bands, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Skid Row, Bon Jovi, they all get on a plane to perform at a concert which is billed as the Moscow Music Peace Festival. You know, they all manner of hell is raised by yeah, these bands imagine. being together. Yeah. <laughs> what a group. Um, NTV had only started in 1984, so they went along too. The concert was massive. There was riot police. It just sounds wild. But if you consider the sort of political climate in the 70s and 80s, Western music had been repressed in Russia. In 1980, the USA boycott the Olympics in the Soviet Union. In 1984, the Soviets boycott the LA Olympics. And then mid-1980s, yeah. Gorbachev, Perestroika, I think it was called, yes, wasn't it? Yes. he starts to open up the country a little bit more. And it's against this sort of history and backdrop that the podcast investigates whether the CIA were responsible for the release of the song the following year as a way of influencing young Russian people and sort of wow. propelling them towards change. Gosh. So it's a bit of fun and uh, oh, it's I worth have to, have to really listen worth to that. That the sounds so That's good. wind of change. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Karen. That sounds amazing. What have you been diving into? Well, I have listened to the very first little introductory episode but Michelle Obama's new podcast oh, will be fantastic. out by the time this episode airs. And I'm really looking oh, forward to absolutely. it. It sounds very personal. In the introduction, she mentions who she's going to be interviewing and her brother mm. and all the people around her. And I, I just think it'll be amazing. Yeah. So I'm really looking yeah, forward to too. that. I'm, mm. I've sort of made a start on that little beginning one and I'm going to keep going so that that sounds really good and I've been to a few movies which has been mm. fun we went to see the trip to Greece with Steve oh, yes. Coogan and Rob Brydon <laughs> have you seen that one no I can't wait though. oh my I goodness love those movies. Oh, it was just hilarious I love all those trip movies yeah. and we just came out of the cinema so upbeat because yeah. we'd just been laughing for two yeah. hours in fact it was quite embarrassing because we stood up and walked out and there were only 12 people in mm. our cinema again and this elderly lady tapped me on the leg and said, oh, I did love hearing your laughter. <laughs> That's good. 
I just good. so embarrassed. I just sort of slunk out. I went, oh, great. And just <laughs> slunk out of there. Oh, no. <laughs> she knew that was me. <laughs> Laughing away in the background. It was terrible. And then on the weekend, we went to see, we didn't really know much about this. We went to see the Burnt Orange Heresy. Yes. And we just sort of went because there was that was the only thing that was on at mm. the right time. And it's quite dark. It's got the most beautiful scenery. It's set mm. in Lake Como. Oh, and the scenery and the cinematography is worth mm. it alone. It's got a very small cast. Elizabeth Debicki is an mm. Australian and she's super tall and thin and From really quite manager. striking. Yes, yep. exactly. Uh, she's excellent. And Donald Sutherland's in mm. it. He's also excellent. And then there's a guy called Clay's Bang, who's a Danish guy, and he's the main character opposite Elizabeth to begin. Mm. He was very good. Mick Jagger is in it. Wow. And he's in it in two parts. And in the first part of the movie, he is just terrible. His acting is just... Is he playing himself? No. Oh, okay. He's playing this sort of eccentric art collector. What on earth? An evil art collector. What on earth has possessed him to do that? Has he put some money into the movie? I thought that must have maybe been what happened. And then he comes back at the end of the movie and he's actually good. Yeah, okay. He's believable and he carries off his lines. The beginning, he really... It's just like he's sort of repeating his lines. It's yes. really not very He does convincing. have quite a camp voice, though, so yeah. I wonder if it's, yeah. yeah. I thought he carried off the second half a lot. Mm. And, and uh, Michael's looked at a few reviews and I think mm. people think the same as us. Yes. So it's, I thought it was worth seeing just for the scenery. But And the interesting thing is Michael and I have kept talking about this movie. Okay. Even this morning Michael came out and said, on that point blah 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 and we had this long conversation Mm. about you know a completely fictional story about how that would have happened and how that art because it's an an art heist yeah and it's based on a book that was written in the 70s so it's all pre-mobile phones Mm. which is key to the story because it's there's a bit of a mystery and it's really quite gripping there was a really shocking moment for us in the cinema well not really shocking but one of those moments when Someone in the audience of the cinema says something that you just sort of think, really? So we were sitting watching and one of the main characters in the film, the Elizabeth Debicki character, she's been assaulted. Yeah. And she then starts verbally taunting the man who has assaulted her. And as she's taunting him, he very violently strikes her and everyone sort of gasps. Mm. And an older lady who was sitting in front of us with her friends and her husband said loudly, "Hmm, she asked for that. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Michael and I just looked at each other and we were just speechless that, you know, a woman would say that, that another woman asked to be very badly assaulted and I won't say what happened to her, but I just thought it's such an interesting insight into people. And well, but people's fact that she values just automatically other, said it without, you know, that, that was obviously exactly yeah, what was, she thought. It was her gut reaction. Oh, she asked for that. Oh, God. So we could not stop talking about that after the movie either. Oh. Just what does that say about her and her values? And I don't know. It's very interesting, isn't it, mm. to reflect on people and they don't always think like we do. No. Yeah, you assume that they I, do. I'm often yeah. shocked by that when mm. people don't think the same way as me. <laughs> 
so that's it for today. That was a lot of fun reading about twins. Yes. I always find them really fascinating. And I think we'll probably be posting some books that we have on our shelves that have twins, twins as the absolutely. characters. Because when we started thinking about this, there are mm. so many. Uh, so it's quite fun to think of other books that have been really good with twins. And once you start thinking of it, you can't stop. And maybe our listeners will tell us about a yes, few more as and, well, which would be books good. That they've lo- mm. yeah, tell us books that you've loved that have had twins as the main character because... Mm. It's really a lot of fun mm. what you can do with with twins and that whole sort of shadow self idea. We'll be back soon. We've got another interesting episode planned. We'll go home now and start reading for. Yes. And uh, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye now. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving.